2: And extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia?
1: Please explain.
2: Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut.
1: Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacking. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This
2: is changing all around the world.
1: I accept your nominee.
2: The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip of no iceberg.
1: Like a really scary wooden puppet, he was drunk. But that's not true. Not now. Not ever.
0: You're a classic space invader.
1: A social climbing sycophant. You should
2: be ashamed of yourselves.
0: Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate.
1: Nice of democracy,
0: very
2: good. <laughs> day and welcome to Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute. Well, hasn't politics been interesting lately? Interesting and yet often depressing, as we see multiple instances of public trust betrayed by politicians who variously hoard information to their own advantage and then spew it out, breaching all kinds of confidences when their backs are against the wall. As we noted on Democracy Sausage this time last year, then Premier of New South Wales Gladys Berejiklian's signature failing was in a preemptive cover-up, the active and repeated non-disclosure of an intimate relationship that may have given rise to concerns of favouritism or conflict of interest. Kieran Gilbert said at the time that Berejiklian would be gone by Christmas – Yet I was already seeing how voters were extending Berejiklian a stay of political execution while she was lauded for her management of the New South Wales response to the pandemic. But Kieran was still right, as he so often is in matters of political judgment, and her secret relationship extending for five years with a disgraced colleague would see her off, her claims of having done nothing wrong starting to ring rather hollow. But what about the federal sphere? Here we've seen the nationals dictating climate policy, And in the last dramatic 24 hours, an unseemly spat between Scott Morrison and Emmanuel Macron. Europe's emerging lead figure, President of France, permanent member of the UN Security Council, NATO member and key to future trade access, carbon tariffs and more. And if that isn't enough, Joe Biden has found himself apologising to Macron for what he wasn't told by Australia. Biden branded the scrapping of the submarine contract as clumsy and done without any grace. Well, all of this is grist to our mill this week because the subject is Scott Morrison, who he is, how he governs, what we can make of, it, make of it all. To do that, we're speaking with Sean Kelly, author of the new book, The Game, A Portrait of Scott Morrison. But before I introduce Sean, let me welcome back Dr. Maria Taflager. Maria, welcome back after, well, you've been here a few times over the uh, the last 12 months, but you've been away for some time on parental duties.
1: That's right. That's right. I'm. I'm happy to be back. I'm. I'm back on deck, uh, as of today. Really, yeah. So that's exciting.
2: Whatever back on deck means.
1: Well, that's right. In these in these times, uh, mostly working from home. Uh, I think that's what it means. Yeah.
2: Yes, it's a it's a sort of a complex thing in a way because uh, the campus, as as so many campuses are, remains closed. And uh, yes, it's a it's a slightly different idea being back at work. It means being at home still.
1: Yes, but I guess I wear nicer clothes. So, uh, <laughs> that's, that's right. the difference.
2: At least on the top half.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. Exactly, Mark.
2: Now, as I said, Sean Kelly is here to talk about his new book, The Game, A Portrait of Scott Morrison. Sean, howdy, and thanks for your time. Thanks so much for having me on. Now, it's uh, we've known each other for a long time, of course. You have a background as a political staffer. You've worked for a number of uh, leading Labor figures, including two Labor prime ministers, Julia Gillard, Gillard and uh, Kevin Rudd. Not many people can actually say that. Uh, so that was something of, a, of an achievement in itself.
0: Uh, I suppose that's true. <laughs> I suppose it's also true that over the past 10 years, there was an increasingly large number of people who didn't say they worked for two or even three
2: prime ministers, uh, given
0: how many we have in a short space of time these days. Uh, but look, it was, it, was, uh, it was certainly an interesting and turbulent few years.
2: Yeah, well, it certainly was. Look, I, 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 I'm just going from my memory at the moment, but... Uh, I seem to recall you were one of very few, perhaps the only sort of senior personal staffer of uh, Kevin Rudd who stayed there for Julia Gillard. Is that correct?
0: Uh, I mean, the answer is yes and no. Um,
2: at a public level, that that
0: probably is the case. I was at this very particular point where I think I was just junior enough not not to have my uh, head immediately locked off uh, and just senior enough to, to still be of use. But actually... um actually the continuity in the office overall was uh, surprisingly large uh, and I think that was because uh, a lot of staff uh, are there less because they want to work for a particular individual that they, they may well respect and, and even have great affection for that individual but they're there because they want to work in politics they're there because they believe in the value of public service they're there because they want to work for a particular party and so often people tend to, to stick around but as I say, I was in a yeah, I was in a particularly niche position. I think.
2: Yes, and you've made uh, quite a name for yourself since then in a variety of capacities, writing uh, some very perceptive commentary and analysis of what's going on in public life, in politics, in public affairs, uh, and of course now you've written this book. Why? Why did you decide to? write this book and i know that sounds like a pretty broad question but but i think it goes to uh from what i've read of it the the sense of there being this ill-defined nature about scott morrison
0: yeah well i actually said no when uh, the publisher first approached me about writing this book about scott morrison i had had already written a long profile of him just after he became prime minister in 2018 and i wasn't sure there was a lot more to be said about him uh, and he didn't, to be honest, seem that interesting to me, and that was the reaction I got from a lot of people when it, when I told them I was thinking about writing this book. People didn't find Scott Morrison a very fascinating figure, uh, but as I as I thought about it, I realised that that this was potentially one of the strangely interesting things about Scott Morrison. Why?
2: Yeah, it's almost the point, isn't
0: it? It it is. Why why hadn't we looked more closely? What had he done? To prevent us looking more closely. And what did it say about us that we were not very interested in examining him closely? After all, he was prime minister, that he fought an election. He won that election. He's done, he's done some strange things along the way. And yet there seemed to be this, uh, this shield up and we didn't seem to want to get past that shield. Uh, So I said about taking a very close look at everything he had done over, over a couple of decades in public life and one of the interesting things over the period I've been in which I've been writing this book is that people's attitudes towards Morrison have shifted of course a lot of people have become more skeptical of him over that time but people have become more interested in him as well uh, that that reaction I got when I first started writing the book of people being uninterested in him has shifted now people say oh uh, I find him I find him fascinating even people who don't like him very much, still find him a bit of an enigma, and and they want to piece together how he succeeded at one point and how he failed at other points. And that is is what the book tries to do, tries to explain those successes and failures.
2: Maria, do you think there's a a sense about Morrison, you know, going to what Sean was just saying, a sense about him in that sort of trajectory of our understanding of him that benefited from Being almost an anti-politician. I know that's a very common thing. The idea of the anti-politician. There are, there are plenty of political leaders who, who kind of emerge and and trade on that. Trump being a, a classic example, really. But Morrison was in a way able to do it because he was largely unknown. As, as Sean says, sort of largely, uh, uncolored in or, or, or kind of, uh, you know, undefined. And he was up against Bill Shorten, who was seen as a real politi- political insider.
1: Which is ironic given Scott Morrison's trajectory is one of the ultimate in- insider being a, a party machine man from, from Central Casting. What are, what are, well, yeah, I mean he ran the New South Wales <laughs> State Department. I, I recently read uh, Annika Smethurst's biography of Morrison um, which goes into a, a mm. considerable amount of, of detail about you know his work in the New South Wales branch and the way he kind of operates. You know, and and, and how data driven he is. And that that actually one of the things I found really fascinating about your book, Sean, was uh, your discussion of authenticity, right? And um, the fact that Scott Morrison had a really clear insight that I think those of us that have been watching politics over the last decade have have kind of noticed, right? Like where social media and that the capacity for backbenchers and for politicians to escape some to some degree, the straitjacket of talking points sent out to them via email every morning, right? And that desire for people to have politicians that are spontaneous and you see their character, that kind of, you know, that kind of capacity and that desire for authenticity. But at the same time, I think you, you really effectively show just how well and just how uh, carefully he sort of crafted this image. You talk about this concept of the flat character. Perhaps you could tell our listeners what you meant by, like what's a flat character and how does that relate to Scott Morrison?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, Scott Morrison's career, in a sense, can be separated into two parts. There's a period before 2015, which is obviously very recent, and up till about 2015, he's a blank slate. He keeps himself completely uh, free of anything, nothing nothing really colours in the outline. It uh, doesn't answer questions. He doesn't really say much about himself. And then from 2015 onwards, you get this sense that he might become Prime Minister, and obviously he knows he's within reach of Prime Minister. Uh, and there's a small chance that that would happen in 2015. It doesn't happen, of course. But it's interesting that it's in that year that he begins to fill in the blanks. You begin to get this sense of a Scott Morrison character, and he does that with very simple broad brushstrokes. There's this... There's this notion advanced by the, the novelist E.M. Forster about fiction, which is that there are broadly two types of characters. There are round characters and they're complex. They're real people, if you like. They have nuances. They surprise us in certain ways. And then there are flat characters, and flat characters are uh, often quite boring because they're very repetitive. They say the same things over and over. They have catchphrases. They have one or two or maybe three characteristics which are very blunt, very obvious, Uh, And we never really learn anything else about them. And Scott Morrison, though I'm sure he wouldn't put it in these terms, but Scott Morrison in 2015 essentially began creating a flat character for us. Uh, There was this man, we found out, who liked to cook a curry on Saturday night. So he was modern, but not too modern. He cooked but just once a week. Uh, He was tolerant because he cooked the food of Sri Lanka and India. He really liked rugby league, so he was in touch with working-class Australians. And really, what else did we know about Scott Morrison going into the 2019 election? Not an awful lot more. Uh, and he knew, he knew firstly that journalists would present that flat character because in a sense, that's what journalists do. They have a limited amount of space in most of the articles they write, most of the news bulletins they present. And so, of course, they communicate fairly simple details. So he kept that picture very simple. And also, I think... He knew that voters would accept that simple character because the the great thing about a simple political character is you don't look more closely, uh, you don't try to find out more details and it allows you to switch off from politics in a way and I think that that is something that many voters quite like to do. They they like to switch off from politics. They like not to turn their attention in its direction and and Scott Morrison I think understood that about us.
1: So... I have a question that I want to ask now that you've explained the concept and that is, do you think that over time being a flat character, um, which was obviously so useful to him at the 2019 election because it's a really easy heuristic, I'm a safe pair of hands, I'm a normal bloke, that shortened guy who is much rounder than me in character terms, well, he's a bit shifty, right? Has that been a, a weakness for him over time? And if you are a flat character, is it easier for people to just You know, to project onto you things that you don't necessarily want because you don't have the roundness.
0: I think that being a flat character is a weakness that emerges with time. I don't know whether it's harmed Morrison irreparably yet, but I think it's certainly done some damage because I think at this point in his prime ministership, uh, people do have some sense of the fact that they were presented with a character. Uh, They have some sense that. Uh, what they saw didn't actually tell us a lot about the man himself. And I think that that does give rise to some level of suspicion. Uh, and, of course, that suspicion then latches on to other elements of, of the Prime Minister's uh, political performance, uh, his tendency to uh, avoid answering questions, which was present early in his life and is still there today, uh, his tendency towards secrecy, his, dis, uh, his dislike of accountability. And I think all of those things begin to wrap up into a, a sense for many Australians uh, they've been had, you know, to, to to some extent. Now, I think that's true of people who follow politics closely. I think that that impression has spread and spread. I don't know whether it's yet become the dominant picture of Scott Morrison. Uh, I think there are plenty of people who are still fairly willing to accept the flat character that he presented. but. The more fundamental point here is uh, in politics, uh, if you are the leader, politics will find you out eventually. Uh, it will expose you as being whoever you are. Uh, you, can only, you can only present a picture for so long. Uh, as a friend of mine remarked this morning in the aftermath of all of this Macron stuff, the, the thing about the Prime Ministership is it does ultimately expose the Prime Minister. does ultimately tell you who the prime minister is and I I think that is a a difficulty for any prime minister but I think it's a particular difficulty for prime ministers who rely on a constructed image for their political success.
2: Now Sean you start off let's go to this sort of in in a bit more detail because you start off in the book really focusing on Annabelle Crabb's kitchen cabinet program and Morrison's selection of that, I suppose, to begin that very process you're talking about of, of sketching in some details, of, of uh, presenting a couple of elements to flesh out his character. And you note that he chooses to, and you've just made reference to this, he chooses to convey himself uh, as someone or portray himself as someone who does a bit of cooking which you you point out has a kind of a at least female connotations to it in terms of its delineation of duties domestically. That he cooks Asian food and specifically the food of some of the countries that, as immigration minister, he had been most harsh on in respect of uh, people seeking to uh, to, to you know, seeking asylum in Australia, and that. Appearance was quite controversial in that sense, wasn't it? Because it was always so obvious to those of us who watch politics that this was an exercise in portraying a certain rounding out of his character, that, it, that, that, that this was a very carefully curated uh, presentation of of Scott Morrison as a human being, not just as a, a politician.
0: Yeah, look, I think you get into very complicated questions here about exactly what people take away when they watch Uh, media presentations and how much you can blame the media for that and how much uh, those of us who consume media need to take responsibility for the opinions we form and the impressions we take. Kitchen Cabinet and and Annabelle were uh, attacked in some quarters after that show aired because of the sense put in by some people that uh, the show was allowing politicians to present a very soft image of themselves. And the the defence given of the show was, well, Actually, it shows another side of politicians. We can't learn everything there is to learn about politicians from press conferences. There are other sides to them. And actually, if you put all of those things together, then you learn something about the politician. Now then you then of course there's a there's a hole that can be picked in that argument because the idea that we are ever seeing real politicians on a TV show is is open to question. Politicians are by their very nature performing for us all of the time that said uh, i think if we are willing to pay attention to that performance then we still can learn something very valuable from from shows like that Uh, so in this case i think it's a a very strange thing really that scott morrison having uh, dealt with sri lanka on asylum seeker policy on having worked with that government in ways that arguably created uh, great troubles for Tamil people in Sri Lanka, decided to use the food of that country as a way to rehabilitate his public image because he'd been known as this hardline immigration minister, and now he was trying to make a segue into being this softer Scomo character. Uh, and I think that's a, you know, that's a remarkably cynical choice on his part. Uh, and so then the question I think becomes, as a viewer of a show like Kitchen Cabinet or really any political show. Are we taking at face value what that politician presents to us, that the idea that Scott Morrison is is this you know, quite nice, regular, charming bloke, or are we savvy enough to say, well, these people are performing, what does the nature of this performance tell us about them? What does the contradiction between this performance and the things they've done in public life
2: uh, tell us?
0: And as I say, I think that is a, a question that each of us has to ask ourselves.
2: Let's take a quick break there and be back in a moment.
1: or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
2: Welcome back. Now, just before the break, we were talking about Scott Morrison's appearance on Kitchen Cabinet and uh, the, the depiction of himself as the you know the Saturday night cook of curries and, and so forth. Maria, I suppose, in a way, what that presents, those sorts of moments present, is a challenge to uh, those of us uh, interpreting these things, uh, who are watching it closely for for professional reasons, it just presents us with a challenge as to how we interpret such an appearance and such a curated presentation. Uh, It tells us something, I guess, about the ambitions of a particular politician and with hindsight, I mean, I think I don't think you even needed hindsight in this case. But certainly, with hindsight, we can see this was part of a a very staged presentation of Scott Morrison uh, in terms of his longer term ambition to be Prime Minister of Australia, which he now is.
1: Yeah, I think that's I think that's a a really interesting observation. I think one of the interesting things about reporting of the Prime Minister at the moment, I guess, particularly in relation to the difficulties the coalition has been having over climate change is this sort of, uh, meta debate that's going on in the media about reading the tea leaves of what the government is saying, what's reading the tea leaves of, of Scott Morrison sort of passing slowly, crab style from, you know, saying that he, you know, he's a lump of coal and to saying now he's committed to net zero. And he has this refrain, uh, that he likes to use, which is quite, which kind of goes to everything that Sean has been saying, which is that, well, I've always said that. You know, and he, he, he regularly and I think and Sean goes into to great lengths to demonstrate this, he kind of regularly asserts that he's always said something, always always believed something, always, you know, this is who he is. And it, it made me think about um Uh, an observation that that you make in the the book, Sean, about how the gravity or the gravitas of the person in front of you at the press conference gives the words that they're saying like a a meaning, right, or a sense of of grandeur. But when you go back to reread what they've said, what you've kind of got is, is kind of gobbledygook, right, and that it's this sort of performative nature. And I guess one of the things that really struck me when I read your book was that people like to compare Scott Morrison with John Howard all the time because of the ordinariness factor. But I always found this to be a really strange comparison, perhaps because I know too much about John Howard. But you know, John Howard is not a politician really that ever struck me as performative. You know, like he he lived the reality of being a, a suburban solicitor whose parents were small business owners and his mother was a Methodist, grew up in a garage. You know, he went to the same holiday place every year. Not because it was good for politics but because why would you go anywhere else right because that's what his family wanted to do Howard was you know a person of for the you know for for a politician for the times a person of great policy substance he lost his job uh basically fighting over policy in the 1980s where do you think this idea that they are uh, comparable has kind of come from and what do you think it kind of tells us about where we're at politically, that that I think a lot of people think that's a useful comparison. I guess, do you even think it's a useful comparison?
0: because no, it it is a really interesting question. Uh, I think that Scott Morrison quite consciously draws on the impression of John Howard in the public mind, and Scott Morrison often will very deliberately and directly mimic Scott, mimic John Howard's tactics. Uh, I think there's a, there's a sense in which. John Howard was thinking through things carefully and responding in certain ways. And Scott Morrison is um, sometimes I think is is a a kind of faded copy of of, uh, John Howard, at least in terms of political tactics. But uh, I'm not, as you say, Maria, I'm not sure the similarity extends much further. One of the really fascinating things at this point in time I have found, and look, I'm not suggesting all listeners will want to do this, but I have occasionally gone back and watch clips of John Howard being interviewed by Kerry O'Brien on 7.30 Report. And um, and they're fascinating because at the time, I remember thinking John Howard was this master at, at not answering questions, at, at skating around uh, media issues he didn't want to deal with. But if, if you watch them uh, in the context of the last uh, 15 years, they are incredibly detailed, substantive interviews uh, if John Howard doesn't agree with something being put to him, he doesn't offer a couple of platitudes or pretend it's the Canberra bubble. He will grapple with what is being put to him and respond with a, uh, with a comprehensive rebuttal. Now you can disagree with a lot of those things, but there's a really, uh, really deliberate effort to engage with people who opposed him. Whereas when you watch Scott Morrison, it, it's not about engaging. It is about uh, deflecting, and it is often about misrepresenting. He will say that uh, he will reject a question, uh, and then misre- by, by misrepresenting that question, he will say, "Well, they I, well, I disagree with this idea completely," but that idea hasn't been put to him. He'll often answer questions that he hasn't been asked, and um, I think the overall effect is that we we never really get answers to very important questions about politics. Uh, so, I think, look, I think, I think that's a that's a, a long answer that probably only grapples with a small part of your question. But I, I do think the Howard-Morrison comparison is interesting.
2: I, I think the comparison with Howard is an interesting one because comparisons can always be picked off Uh on, on details, and I'm not saying these, those are irrelevant details at all. I agree with the observations about Howard's substance, and I watched him in many interviews and, of course, interviewed him a number of times myself, and, and Morrison is different. But I think there are similarities in, this, in the whole stressing of the kind of suburbanness, the suburbanity of, of, of the political product. That is very much a confection in Morrison's case, but nonetheless, to the extent that it's convincing, operates in a similar way electorally. And I also think there's a, there's a sort of a Jeffrey boycott-like character about both of them, which is, you know, they, they might be a little bit annoying and they might be pretty uns- unspectacular, but you can't get them out. And there's a very strong sense of that. I think that's been uh, evident in Morrison's approach for a long time. He is a difficult interview subject because he does not make a lot of mistakes. He's he's kind of very front-footed in his defense. Uh, and, and so, as a result, it's, a uh, you know, it's, it, those sorts of similarities, really, I think, do hold. You know, they're both conservatives, and they've both got that kind of churchiness about him. Morrison's a different kind of churchiness, but but there it is. Look, can I turn now to just so that we can sort of um, you know flesh out a bit more about who Morrison is really? Can I turn now, uh, Sean, to uh, the whole business of how Morrison becomes prime minister? Because you spend a bit of time on that in the book. Uh, and that is a subject of great fascination and, and, and a lot of disagreement, I suppose, as to how involved Morrison was or Morrison's supporters were in perhaps weakening Malcolm Turnbull when Dutton was challenging him in 2018. And out of which Morrison obviously er- emerges with the job and whether there are similarities with perhaps Morrison sticking with Abbott in 2015 while some of his supporters actually flicked across to Turnbull. And in both cases, Morrison did pretty well out of it. Absolutely.
0: Look, I, I think one of the really fascinating things about Scott Morrison, uh, it's either a uh, a completely bizarre coincidence or it tells you something very important, is the fact that in three of the most important political moments in his life, the pre-selection, which he loses at first and then wins for, for a Liberal Party seat, the Battle over Tony Abbott versus Malcolm Turnbull, and then the battle over uh, Malcolm Turnbull's uh, prime ministership. He benefits enormously, but always says he had nothing to do with it, had completely clean hands. Uh, so there's a there's a very mm. strange series there, and I think what what happens in 2015 is that Scott Morrison himself says, "Well, of, of course I've been loyal to Tony Abbott," and in, a, in a really technical sense. That was probably true, but. Uh, he probably voted for Tony Abbott, but his supporters, I think, threw their support behind Turnbull. And then I think a very similar thing happens in 2018. So in a way, 2015 was a dress rehearsal for 2018. Scott Morrison and his supporters had played the game once, and then they were able to play it again with even more skill, uh, this time to get Morrison the, the ultimate job. Uh, and that obviously worked very well. And then you have Scott Morrison doing exactly the same thing in 2018 as he did in 2015, standing up and saying I was loyal to the leader until the, the very last possible moment.
2: That's right. We, we of course all remember the moment where he says uh, he's my prime minister and I'm loyal to. Uh, I'm ambitious for him uh, mm. with his arm around Malcolm Turnbull, who's at that stage under siege. That's in pretty much in the week. I think it's like 24 hours before Malcolm Turnbull yeah. is no longer prime minister and Scott Morrison is and. Uh, you know, it's a pretty, pretty lucky set of events. Craig Laundy, who was very much a Turnbull loyalist, tells of a, a moment when they're doing the numbers, when he's doing the numbers with Morrison's lieutenants, and he gets the sense that there are some people who have voted for Dutton who are going to switch to Morrison. Laundy wants to know how they can be so sure of that, and suddenly the penny drops that there's been a bit of strategic weakening of Turnbull going on, so they can knock him out of the race, and then uh, and then swing back onto Morrison's side. Um, so, yes, um, he, he's not been afraid of the dark arts of politics, has he, Scott Morrison?
0: No, absolutely. He um, He's very good at, uh, at kind of looking in one direction, knowing that the work is being done on his behalf somewhere else. Uh, and that, that kind of, you know, in a way, it's of a piece with so many other parts of Scott Morrison's political career. It's a question of deflection uh, when you actually try to look at what he is responsible for it's very, very hard to pin him down. But that doesn't mean that uh that his hand isn't in there working uh getting getting the job done nonetheless. And you know Malcolm Turnbull uh is I guess on some level understandably pretty bitter about this. And in his memoir, uh he can't definitively prove uh what happened in 2018. But what he can do is talk about all of the times in the lead up uh to Tony Abbott's removal, Uh, Scott Morrison was scheming against Abbott. Scott Morrison was saying, We have to bring Abbott down almost from the beginning of Abbott's prime ministership. So he he creates this idea in his memoir that Scott Morrison uh, is always working to bring down leaders. And so while he can't prove that in his own case, uh, he thinks that it is the. And yet
2: you note that. uh, that um, Turnbull writes about Morrison in in an almost sort of detached manner, like he's not entirely convinced himself. He's assembling the facts, which he argues point to uh, Morrison's complicity in in his in Turnbull's demise. But com- you compare that with the way Turnbull writes in the memoir about Matthias Cormann, and there's much more kind of venom and and and. Emotion and passion in his harsh words mm. for Matthias Cormann's betrayal. He's
0: obviously shattered by what Matthias Cormann did to him. He's obviously, obviously feels deeply betrayed and he uses the word betray. And I think that does point to the fact that he had a genuine friendship with Cormann and, and also that, that he he had a clear sense of who he thought Cormann was. That's when we feel betrayed, Mark. We feel betrayed when we think. We've seen inside somebody when we think we know who somebody is and then it turns out that there's somebody else. Uh, but Turnbull, even though he, he wants to point out what Morrison did, you never, you never really get the sense that he, he feels hurt by it, feels personally hurt by it. And I think there is this sense there that he never saw Scott Morrison clearly. And for me, that's of a piece with Scott Morrison's public demeanor. When Scott Morrison became prime minister in 2018, He took over from Turnbull. One of the funny things was how little Australians seemed to know about him. Uh, newspapers ran uh, articles saying, who is Scott Morrison? So they could fill their readers in. He approaches this bloke outside the MCG, goes to, goes to shake his hand and and the bloke seems very confused and says, right. So, so who are you then? Uh, there is this, there is this sense that people don't know who Scott Morrison is. And what I think is really interesting is that that is true at a public level, but the Turnbull mem- memoir I think gives you a sense that it's true at a private level as well, that Scott Morrison actually manages to uh, keep all but a very few people uh, away from him, away from any getting, getting any sense of who he might truly be.
1: I think that's um, really interesting given his you know relative visibility like he was in important policy domains he he was Mm. the treasurer and I think I think that is actually kind of interesting to compare him to say his predecessors and his current the current incumbent I think John Josh Frydenberg does cast a larger shadow in that portfolio than 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 Scott Morrison did and and that is actually kind of a remarkable achievement to to get to the prime ministership and to to be such an uh, a sort of mysterious and, and unknown quality. I, I sort of struggle to really remember a historical parallel where that has happened, except for perhaps when uh, one of those nationals sort of stepped into the role because the Liberal Party was working out who was going to be Prime Minister. Sean, I have a really unfair big question to ask you. And yeah, exactly. So get nervous. Okay. <laughs> so I think I think the other theme of our times is is like a lack of, of trust in, in politicians, in the political process. And it kind of relates directly to this idea of authenticity. And the other big story that's going on at the moment is um, Gladys Berejiklian before ICAC and this ongoing... A discussion and saga that we're having around public probity whether or not pork barreling is okay and I guess my my big question is you know does does character matter like in that 1950s sense like does being a good person matter in politics is is the fact that we have so many displays of inauthentic uh projections and performances is this is this a problem for politics or has it always been this way? It's just that it's easier to pick apart now.
0: Well, yeah, I think what it's tied to, it is a complicated question, does, does being a good person matter? I mean, not necessarily because being a good person might be a question of who you are in your private life.
1: Uh, I think one of the mistakes
0: we sometimes make is in thinking that who a person is privately necessarily has much to do with what sort of a prime minister they are. Uh, often I think a prime minister can act in a certain way that has nothing to do with who they're, they're like as a person. Uh, so I think it, it's actually more a question of what do our politicians do? And so if Scott Morrison was just, uh, presenting an image and, you know, it was, it was true or it was fake, doesn't really matter. Uh, but he had been this exceptional prime minister who was doggedly pursuing substantive policy changes, who was uh, manoeuvring them through the Senate uh, who had responded incredibly well uh, at times of crisis, then I think you would say, well, okay, uh, I don't really care about this guy's image creation machine. Uh, let's actually judge him as a prime minister. And, I mean, I, th- I think the Gladysburg berogiclin discussion is a complicated one, but, it, but I think that is more or less what happened uh, when the ICAC matters rose up around Jiplian. the people of new south wales decided to a very large extent that they were upset because there was a sense that she was a competent politician but i think you have uh, i think you have two things going on here you have this rise of inauthenticity in public life you have this increasing sense that politicians are performers uh, and that um, slowly erodes trust, as you say, Maria. It erodes trust in politics. It erodes trust in politicians. At the same time, I think you have a growing incompetence in our political class, uh, and the, the problem with that is that uh, somebody like Berejiklian uh, can... Uh, there is still an incredible thirst for competence, a greater thirst for competence than perhaps there once was, a greater willingness to overlook uh, any potential improprieties because we're so short sure of, of very effective politicians. Uh, so I guess I, w- I, would, I would say it is still important, or it should be more important what a politician does, both in terms of the competent delivery of policy and in terms of their adherence to accountability Uh,
2: and propriety. Authenticity, though, really matters, doesn't it? I mean, it's – and authenticity is not – it's just – it's not a simple concept because really it has to do with whether that what we understand about a person, the details that we understand, whether those details are contiguous and and add up to something that is kind of broadly understandable. And I think in a way – and I'm not asking you personally necessarily to comment on this, Sean, but in a way I always thought that was – what was wrong with Gillard's position on, you know, same-sex marriage and and a few other things, where it, it appeared like she had positions that were contrary to what the public would understand to be the uh, the general propositions around which a, a you know a centre-left person would would cohere. And so Morrison's been quite good, I think, at at essentially projecting as Mister Suburban. And in 2019, as you say, we didn't know a great deal about him but he was able to present as you know the daggy dad baseball cap wearing guy who was essentially every man and so you didn't really need to know Scott Morrison you just needed to agree with the idea of a competent every man versus a conniving ambitious uh, you know presentation that they were making of of Labor's Bill Shorten and in the end, voters go voters go for that kind of that conservative choice if they're a little bit worried, and that's what happened. And who knows, it might be what happens again.
0: Well, yeah, I, and I think the difficulty is that when we are first presented with a flat character, with it with a simple image of somebody, we can easily mistake that for authenticity. We can think, well, you know, there are a couple of aspects of this person I know. That's all I know. Those aspects match each other, and therefore. Uh, that means this person is authentic in some important way. Whereas often what that can really mean is is this person is playing a game. This person is putting on a very deliberate performance. They know the type of character they should be presenting to us. Uh, and I think trying to separate out those elements as voters is, is very difficult. But I, I think that is what happens with time. To go back to the beginning of the podcast when we are talking uh, about the way that a thin character or a flat character can fall apart over time, I, I think in a sense that's what happens. We learn over time that this flat character that we thought of as authentic is in fact a round character with with lots of uh, lots of edges that jut out, lots of things that surprise us, lots of things that aren't entirely consistent, and then we have to make another judgment on how much we like the actual person who's showing through.
2: Now, we're getting very long on time here, so I just want to, uh, kind of, I guess, finish on this and happy to get, you know, get both your thoughts on this. But, uh, obviously we've got this, this spat going on with, with France. It's very personal between Emmanuel Macron and, and Scott Morrison, who lied. Biden's, uh, you know, intervened in this as well. I, what does that tell us? You've, you've written, uh, Sean, about the notion Morrison's kind of, you know, practice of essentially always dealing in the now. He's like the maestro of the now. Uh, he's not particularly concerned with history, and he's not particularly concerned with the future. And he, but he likes to command uh, the immediate. And at the moment, he's 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 hitting back. Uh, it goes back to that sort of cricket analogy I I made before. You know, he doesn't like taking blows. He he hits back. But uh, it's he's got no apparently no particular uh, limitations that others might have about how that's inconsistent with what has gone before or what it might mean going forward. I mean, I think the first thing to say is that
0: this is an incredible policy spat. It is an incredibly explosive diplomatic incident when you see uh, France and America and Australia really going at each other publicly. These are not not subtle interventions that are being made. We very rarely see this type of disagreement between leaders at an international levels. So I think that's the first point. It's really significant. And then to, to your point, Mark, yeah. the Prime Minister of our country absolutely has this ability to do and say whatever is necessary in the moment. Now, I think he believes that whatever he is saying in the moment. I think he is capable of convincing himself that whatever he feels he needs to say is in fact the truth. Now, I don't know. What happened uh, between France and Australia? But I am pretty sure that even if it didn't happen the way that Scott Morrison says it happened, uh, he would he would say what he's saying anyway, and he would be utterly convinced that he was uttering the truth. Yeah,
1: I think yeah. I, th- I mean, I think that's. I think for me, what is interesting about this is we've seen this kind of drama play out b- before, like not nowhere near the same sort of stakes. But you know, I sort of wonder, like whether or not another, I guess, flat character is is being formed of, of you know, the man who it's never his responsibility, you know, it's always someone else's fault, and I I feel like we've all worked with someone like that, and I kind of <laughs> wonder, you know, and I I do, and I wonder, like I I wonder if if you have to be paying really close attention to see that. That kind of caricature form, or if that is something that kind of percolates down into Vodoland, and it was one of the things that was interesting about the way Annika smethurst 's biography of Scott Morrison ended was it basically sort of said women don 't like him, women who work with him don 't like him and i i do I do wonder whether or not this sort of you know, this this dude that we've all worked with, it's never his fault, it's always someone else to blame or there's always a reason or always an excuse. I I just wonder if that is hardening in certain parts of the electorate or is that just something that people who spend too much time watching politics might be noticing?
2: Yeah, well, that's a really good question because voters don't keep lists in their minds of these various things. And so while they might have a general over-time form up a general impression of someone who's always blame shifting if they don't have the evidence there that you know the, they have have been noting down these moments where it's always been someone else's fault then that's in that you know then that can be a hard argument to kind of prosecute around the barbecue or whatever and and it can fall away one of the things that i guess happens as people live their lives and do other things and don't follow politics in the way that we do, um, look. Final question, Sean, because I think this is uh, this would be remiss not to sort of go to this question. Clearly, Anthony Albanese is going a different way about uh, the run up to the next election than did Bill Shorten. I remember writing; I've probably said it on this pod before, but I certainly remember writing in in the lead up to twenty nineteen that if if Labor fell short, no one would ever again have a big agenda and, you know, a huge amount of detail in their policy releases from opposition. Pretty well straight away we can see that uh, Albanese is intent on not doing what uh, Bill Shorten did last time and he's going to get some criticism for that. How do you think it's going and do you think he's prepared to sort of take the blows from the left about not being ambitious enough here and there in order to win and and, and plan to do what he does from government?
0: I think that he is uh, willing to withstand the blows from the left, absolutely. I think that Albanese believes, and he said this publicly, he believes that winning an election and giving himself the chance of implementing Labor-style policies is the most important thing, so he will do what he thinks is necessary to win that election. Will it work? I I really have no idea. The, the point somebody was uh, making to me a few days ago is, is essentially you have a contest between two empty chairs at the moment, two people who aren't really advancing any policies or saying they stand for anything in particular. And in that context at the moment, Labor is winning. And so uh, Labor is obviously trying very hard not to provide Scott Morrison with a villain for him to take down because Scott Morrison is very good at that.
2: Yeah, not to make the election about the opposition, but to make That's the right? election about the government's performance.
0: Obviously, there is there is a piece of conventional wisdom, which I definitely hew uh, to in general, which is that, Labour unlike the Liberals Labour can't win without inspiring the public I know there's a saying that governments lose elections and I think that's true to a large extent but I think I think Labour oppositions also need to win elections So Albanese is in if he runs small target all the way to the election trying to upset that conventional wisdom and you know Mark it's a very strange time covid makes it a strange time the the succession of several prime ministers yeah. makes it a strange time. The way social media has changed politics makes it a strange time. Maybe he can do it. I I am generally sceptical of the small target approach from Labor, and I, I've written that in the last few weeks, but I don't know what will happen at that election because I, I do think this is an odd time. And I think Albanese, is he is smart when it comes to politics and maybe he knows what he's doing.
2: Yes, he's he's definitely uh, a very strategic thinker. But uh, Maria, I guess there's there is that risk, as Sean makes reference to, and Chris Wallace has written about this as well. The danger of overlearning the lesson from the last time, and perhaps taking things too literally when the circumstances have changed. And if there hasn't been a, a, a you know, if there's been a change like uh, COVID before in an election cycle, I certainly don't remember it.
1: Yeah, I I I, th- I think that's true. You shouldn't fight the last war. I, I think that's something that Albanese actually understood. And I think I articulated from week one uh, in the job. Look, COVID is such a bizarre um, externality, right, that has happened to the political system. And I think we could all have sort of said, well, you know, the incumbency advantage would help the government. But that is starting to shift. And I, I personally think it will come down to where voters are at uh, when that when that poll comes around, are they still sort of encircling the wagons mode? Uh, they'll probably be back an incumbent, or will they be looking to the future and thinking, "Is this government equipped to do the job for the next decade?" I think the election will turn on on where the electorate is at psychically. Like you know, I think that's what's going to what it's going to come down to.
2: Yeah, that's a very good point, and perhaps uh, perhaps Labour might uh, get to uh, get vote, some voters to ask the question: Do they expect the, this government in a fourth term to be dramatically different or better than it's been in the three terms so far, marked by so many scandals? That's a question, I think, that has some potency out there in the electorate as well. Sean Kelly and Maria Teflager, thanks so much. It's been a terrific discussion, and I feel like we could just keep going here because I'm very much enjoying it. But uh, I have to call it stumps at this stage to labour the cricket metaphor. Thanks a lot, Sean, for being on and congratulations on the game. Thanks so much for
0: having me on, Matt.
2: We'll look forward to talking to you again. And, Maria, uh, presumably next week, hopefully, you'll still be with Oh, us.
1: yes, definitely. Yep.
2: Look forward to it. That's, Can't get rid of me now. That's Democracy Sausage. <laughs> See you again next week.
1: Bye.